Welcome to To Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church, and I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey there. So we are finished up Zephaniah and Second Kings, uh, not finished Second Kings, but we'll continue we're into close. some of the histories. Uh, and so, yeah, but but we're at sort of maybe a slightly better part of Zephaniah than that opening chapter was, uh, that, um, that Zephaniah is actually calling the people to, to gather mm-hmm. and actually repent, um, sort of seek the Lord, seek righteousness, seek humility. And perhaps God will change his mind as if and I is at least uh, deferring to the sovereignty of God in this um, process. And so um, we got the warning in chapter one, and now we have the call to change in chapter two in some ways. And um, yeah. Yeah. I wonder if some of this lesson comes from even what they saw with Manasseh. If he really did repent, he was super wicked. And so Zephaniah is emphasizing the opportunity for repentance of those who are willing to obey and humble themselves. So those are the stipulations. If you want to, find repentance, you have to humble yourself and obey. Yeah. And definitely starts turning his attention to the whole world. And um, sort of like Amos, he, he kind of moves around uh, Israel and some of his condemnations of the Philistines in the Southwest and the Moabites in the Southeast and Amon, which is in the North and Cushites in the South, Assyria in the North. Um, and, and so it starts moving around and ultimately hones in on Israel as well. And once again, we're reminded that God's people are on the list and, mm-hmm. um, and Zephaniah this is interesting. I think there's a slightly different take in how to read it. And uh, the leadership in Judah is just as bad as nations around them, certainly. But uh, God almost has this language of like, you know what? I, 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 I thought you would come to repentance as I sort of showed my judgment on the nations around you, uh, but you're not going to, and I'm still going to pour out my wrath on you. Yeah, they'll be held accountable for their lack of repentance and their sin. Um, but uh, the good news is like, yes, he's pouring out his wrath on the nations in judgment, but but there's an intended effect on the other side of it mm-hmm. and that the judgment would bring about um, not only some of these nations coming to know uh, the Lord, but also this, this restored remnant in Israel, one that worships God reflects how they are actually called to live. I love this section and kind of the beginning of chapter three. This is what we long for to live out God's design for us. We want to look forward or we do look forward to the day when we will be a people who are humble and lowly seeking refuge in the name of the Lord. There will be justice and there will be honesty in this day. And we have a glimpse of this to the Holy Spirit that's dwelling within us, but it's what we really truly look forward to in heaven. Yeah, and it will be this restoration as sort of the book kind of wraps up of um, God's people. And so, yeah, it's, it's a pretty easy storyline in this book. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Judah, your idolatry is causing problems. God's judgment is coming. But if you repent, maybe God will change his mind. But but waits on, what waits on your doorstep and what's calling the fall, the fall of all of your neighbors? And it's eventually going to come to you. And yes, I thought maybe your neighbor judgment would cause you to change, but it won't. And so I'm going to bring this judgment, but ultimately it's going to refine not just the nations, but you, Israel, and I will restore you as my people. Yeah. So final thoughts? So I think in this, I feel like I read through it kind of quickly and said it kind of quickly, but I saw a strong distinguishment between God's holiness and sovereignty and our sinfulness, and it really stirred in me a longing for the day of the Lord. And personally, I continue just to have a difficult time in my mind with God's judgment. Uh, I think my worldview is still so woven into my understanding and my framework. But this last chapter of Zephaniah really makes me long for this coming day. And I know that I'm secure and safe in God through the gospel. And I love Him. And I long to see Him face to face where I don't have to fight for it anymore. But I will live in purity under His tangible, visible rule. It gives me hope as a follower of Christ. 
Yeah. And I found the timing of this book interesting. Like in Hezekiah, we not only got a king that was sort of in this repentance process, but we also seem to get the people who are willing to trust in Yahweh, who are really to, to siege up and not give in to the Assyrian invaders. And um, you certainly saw sort of a nation change. But as Zephaniah, he's writing during the, the reign of Josiah, as you read this week, like Josiah certainly seems to have a change, but it's a question of like how, how the nation does change or not. And, um, and, and Zephaniah is calling the people to that of saying like, look, we all have to repent. We all have to do this uh, change, and uh, perhaps God won't bring this destruction. And um, in, in some ways, I think there's also sort of this teaching of like, well, don't get too comfortable, Israel. Like, great, you had Hezekiah, but don't forget Manasseh came right after that. And great, you have Josiah right now, but don't forget it's going to get bad again. And so it's such a lesson to to, to call people to repentance. And um, like Martin Luther, in the, the first of his uh, theses that he posted on the wall, um, it, the first one is, "Our Lord, and Master Jesus Christ." will the entire life of a believer to be one of repentance mm, and um, this idea that that Israel don't don't forget to, to, to always have this sort of returning process to the Lord yeah and when we understand his mercy we understand his open welcoming arms to restore us then repentance doesn't have to be something we are afraid of or resist and then let's jump back into the histories. Uh, so we're doing Second Kings. And just a reminder, Kings is the, the history book that was written probably a little closer to the times of these moments as opposed to Chronicles. And so um, we hear Josiah, and he's reigning in Judah. He takes over at a ripe eight, old age eight. of eight. And um, we find out he's actually more like David uh, than his uh, corrupt father or grandfather. And so um, it's quite a change. And Josiah, yeah, we definitely see God's sovereign hand and rule in this. Only God can equip and empower an eight-year-old to be faithful. <laughs> For real. And then uh, they just happen to find this book and, and some of these things that just happen to happen during this reign. And so uh, Josiah decides that the temple needs some repairs and um, tells the secretary to go talk to the priest about rebuilding the temple and, and a whole lot of trust that's given to the priesthood who has not always had a history of good trust on that. Yeah. And so uh, when they go to repair, it seems like they find the book of the law, which um, most people think refers to the book of Deuteronomy. And um, the priest brings it back to, or gives it to Josiah, secretary brings it to Josiah and he reads it. And he seems like profoundly struck um, about um, how they're out of line with what actually God speaks of his laws, his design. Um, and Josiah is really concerned about God's wrath in this. <laughs> so uh, he sets out a group, group of the priest, secretary and others to, to go speak to this prophetess. And she's basically like, you know what? Judah's still going to be judged for some of its wicked ways, but Josiah, yeah, like you repented. It's going to turn out okay for you. Yeah. What a faithful God we get to see in this story. Israel is so far gone from following God that they find his law and they're like, oh, look, I found this book. They didn't even seem to know what it was. And it's just crazy to me that they could fall so far away with two generations only of wicked kings. It's a reminder to us of God's faithfulness to his people and even his honoring of Josiah that we acted without knowledge of the law and also a reminder of how amazingly faithful God is. Yeah. And Josiah has reforms. Uh, he brings some leaders in. They sort of have this sort of covenantal ceremony to say they're going to walk rightly. And then we get, as you read, a lot of descriptions on how they're going to destroy all of these idols, like a lot. And so there's a lot of details, but this is a true, like clean sweep. Yeah. It helped me to see how much they had fallen into idol worship. I really actually appreciated all the details about the different forms of worship because it helps me to see how really disgusting and wicked the behavior was. Yep. And there's a, a restoration of the Passover. It's interesting kind of the parallel there of, um, 
kind of a story of Yahweh destroying all the sort of pagan gods. And then they would, um, in the Exodus story, we kind of see Yahweh deal with all the Egyptian gods and then they have the Passover at the end. And this feels like the people of God destroying all the pagan gods. And then they have a Passover at the end of it. And uh, for whatever reason, this Passover has possibly been skipped since the judges. Um, and I would argue, uh, there's, there's different instructions on the Passover from Deuteronomy, uh, to Exodus. And so, um, I know we've had a mention of the Passover, like in Hezekiah. And so, um, Maybe it's uh, maybe it's getting to the, really the the true fruition of the practice that we find in Deuteronomy that's that's finally being practiced for the Israelites. Yeah, one of the patterns we see is that even when a king turns to the Lord, that we don't always see the people themselves turning with whole hearts to Yahweh. So God's wrath will still come and exile will still happen, but God will use it to purify His people. And we find out He's the last good king. Yeah, truth is going to fall. And so uh, Josiah has a death, uh, and it's kind of this really almost nondescript story where uh, the Egyptian pharaoh is heading to the Assyrian king, and Josiah decides to go try to cut them off, and uh, he's just kind of immediately killed upon arrival by the Egyptian king, the pharaoh. Mm Mm-hmm. And then uh, the next to take over is Jehoahaz, who reigns for like three months. And um, and that doesn't take long for everybody to get back to their idolatrous ways, which makes you wonder what sort of repentance Israel might have actually not had uh, in the midst of their practicing of Passover and things like that, because um, it only takes three months. And, um, and we see so much about Pharaoh showing up. So he's kind of ruling, but he's really kind of under Pharaoh's thumb and... Yep. We've read so much in the prophets about how like foolish it is to trust in Egypt instead of yeah, Yahweh, and yeah. we're seeing it happen here. Uh, other than Jesus escaping in in, uh, in the early uh, kind of Christmas stories, I, I don't know if there's much positive stories that really ever come out of Egypt. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah. And uh, Pharaoh decides he doesn't actually want Jehoahaz around. And so uh, he makes uh, Eliakim king, renames him to Jehoiakim. Um, and he's also part of the family. And so it's, it's a bit of a mess. But I guess Pharaoh probably thinks this guy's better at kind of paying tribute and things like that. And yeah. so Jehoiakim taxes the people to cause them to pay tribute. Uh, continues idol worship. Babylon's still coming uh, along with the rest of the nations to be overtaken. So Jehoiakim, I think, tries to delay it a bit by starting to pay tribute to the Babylonians, but he only does that for three years and gives up on that. Um, and the author here kind of reminds us, like, look, all these things are happening because they're exactly what God said. This isn't a surprise. This is a, this is what God had planned for Judah. And so uh, God's still the orchestrator of all of this process. Mm. And then Jehoiachin takes over. He does what's right in the sight of the, does what does evil. What, evil in the sight of the Lord. And so that's all you really need to know about him, according to the author. And, and then, then Jerusalem is yeah, captured. Jerusalem's finally captured. They raid the temple. They destroy all the items dedicated to God, which probably includes like the lampstand and things like that. Um, and they take all the royalty and what would be considered a quote unquote useful people to them and bring back to, to Babylon. And, and they leave behind the poor and uh, what would be considered burdensome to their society. Uh, they leave them back in Jerusalem. Yeah, this is one of the first of three deportations to Babylon. So we see a lot of the temple stuff and 10,000 or so captives. And then we'll see a couple more as we continue to read. Um, and then Nebuchadnezzar puts a, another sort of kind of puppet king in some mm-hmm. ways, vassal kings that uh, are going to collect taxes, even renames him just to show his authority over them. And Zedekiah, um, and he's not a great team king either. Uh, and the ex- exile is about to be complete and he tries to rebel. And that's about all we know about him. Yeah. 
And so let's head into Philippians. Um, so, uh, we find out that Paul really wants to send somebody to the church. And at this point, he's not ready to quite send Timothy yet. And so he's going to send Epaphroditus, who came from their church to begin with, uh, it seems like. And um, Epaphroditus, he expects them to be so excited to see him again because Epaphroditus had been really sick. It was close to dying, but he's gotten better. And so it should be great for them to, to see him again. Paul really does have some awesome companions in the gospel. He doesn't go it alone, even though he's kind of the big name. We get these names throughout all of the New Testament of people who have been companions to Paul and real encouragements to him. So who are you encouraging and who is your companion in the gospel? Yep. And Paul does find out that there's some sort of Judaizing attacks on the church there, that there's some people coming in trying to... um, require people to follow certain dietary laws, probably circumcision, all this sort of things. And uh, Paul, Paul comes in sort of dealing with this question of righteousness again. And um, he, he kind of says, look, if anybody could have earned righteousness based upon works, he's like, it was me. Like mm-hmm. he's, he's, he's done it all. And he lays it all out there in sort of this kind of braggy way. And if he's basically saying, if righteousness could have come from the law itself, he's like, I'd, I'd be blameless. I'd be like the first one in line. But all of it, all the achievements, all the accomplishments, all of it is rubbish. Why? Because of Christ. Like yeah. I trade it all. I trade all the works for simply just knowing Christ. And and Paul doesn't want the inferior righteousness, this sort of inferior um, satisfaction, which never really comes from following all the rules and doing all the things right. He wants a righteousness that comes outside of himself, this truly deeper one that comes from faith in Jesus. And uh, I kind of like the way Eugene Peterson wraps up this section. He says, I gave up all the inferior stuff so I can know Christ personally, experience his resurrection power, be a partner in his suffering, and go all the way with him to death itself. If there was any way to get in on the resurrection of the dead, I wanted to do it. And it just shows Paul's sort of long with Jesus. He's like, everything else in my life, all the accomplishments, all the credentials I have are nothing compared to just knowing Jesus. This passage is a good reminder for us to step back and, and think about the things that we love or the things we value, the things we pride ourselves on and evaluate what position they hold in our hearts. Can we pray the prayer that Paul prays, desiring to gain Christ, to know the power of resurre- his resurrection and to share in his sufferings? And if you can't pray that, ask God to help you pray it. Yep. Uh, And then Paul moves into a bit of a race analogy. uh, And he's reminding them, look, like, don't think I've I've finished the race yet. I don't think I've succeeded in finishing the race. Like, I still have a ways to go, but I I know the goal and I'm running after it. And, uh, And he encourages the church to sort of have this perseverance, stick with it, keep your eyes on the prize because there's others who have been distracted and, and they're thinking about their bodies or instant gratification, whatever it is. And, strive towards that heavenly goal and even wraps up this idea of this race analogy by saying, and you guys are my crown. Like a reward in this race Mm -hmm. is, is, is you guys too. Paul really encourages them to embrace the true reality that our home is in heaven and that we are exiles here on this earth. The way people around us live is dissatisfying and it's empty and it leads to destruction. So we as followers of Christ need to be disciplined to live for our heavenly kingdom and its laws, trusting and waiting for the day when God will make our bodies to be like his glorious body. And this is the hope that will help us stand firm as exiles. So as part of striving to finish that race is is also dealing with this relational strife. Uh, These two women that are um, um, 
disagreeing in the church or, and, and they're co-labors with Paul. Their, their names are in the book of life, but this is some family drama that Paul wants them to fix. And so, um, he desires, he desires a rejoicing kind of church. And so he instructs them right after that going to rejoice. And Paul even has to say it twice. Like, again, I say it rejoice. And I don't think this is sort of the happy clappy sort of rejoicing kind of picture that Paul's after because even all the language that comes right after this is sort of this idea of being satisfied with God in all circumstances, one that can, one that can pray to God and really trust him with things. And in that there's a peace that guards our hearts. And so guards the anxiety and things like that, that, that even Paul mentions. And, um, and I think he even wraps up, you know, it helps in all that to think about what is right and what is true and what is godly and, and to live out, to put into practice the things that I've taught you. We are impacted by what we take in around us and what we think about. And a good evaluation to wonder what's on your mind and what you're really thinking about is what happens, what's on your mind when you're spacing out in the car, you're falling asleep at night, what are you focusing on? This is a really good indicator of where your thought life is and what sort of things you dwell on. So I would encourage you to memorize this verse on thinking about what is true and lovely and be disciplined in even those passive thought moments to consider Christ, ask him to help you to love what God loves and to hate what he hates. And, and God reminds them uh, right before he starts talking about their, uh, their support for him. Paul, Paul reminds them that he has been in plenty and like he has been in situations where he's had plenty of the resources that he needed, but he's also been in situations where he's had very little and, and he's kind of learned that he can be content in all of the situations that he can live for the Lord in any of those situations that they are not determining factors for him, um, that he can do all things through Christ who brings him the t- true strength. And then he reminds them like, look, in those early days, he probably is kind of noting, I didn't have much, and you were the only church that was supporting me at the time. All the other churches hadn't, and you supported me in the preaching of the gospel and the gospel going forth. And now there's there's plenty of support, and yet you guys, through Epaphroditus, are still uh, sending me gifts. And he's really appreciative of their partnership in his labors, and he reminds them that God's going to continue to take care of you because he has a greater generosity than you guys can ever have. And exhorts them to remember that Christ is our contentment. Christ is our provider. And because of that, because we trust him to give us what we need, we should be the first to give generously to others. Yep. And then sort of a final greeting is basically like the folks in Rome say hello to y'all, especially those in Caesar's household. So I'm like, hopefully this letter doesn't get hijacked by somebody in Caesar's house or or in Caesar's company. They're like, hey, Caesar, did you know that Paul's got some... Christian friends in your household. Yeah. So, uh, but apparently the gospel's moving forth so much that it has even impacted Caesar's house. Which is awesome. Final thoughts. I love how beautifully Paul weaves identity into action. He is so clear that none of what he does or instructs the church to do is to earn anything, but it is because we are new creations. And I also saw a really big theme of living as exiles with a heavenly citizenship in this book that I hadn't seen before. I think it's a really good connection to what we're reading in the Old Testament because Israel in exile in Assyria and Babylon is much more like what we are as Christians now. So all of Paul's instructions around this are to remember your home and the governing laws of your home country, which is heaven for us. So we as believers today need to see ourselves as exiles and not trying to fit into this country and this land. This life of being in exile is marked by joy, by unity in the church, and by the pursuit of holiness through our actions and our thoughts. And this will set us apart and make us different from the world around us. Yeah. In, in a letter that's um, 
more so traditionally known for joy and stuff like that and all of that's still there uh, but it wasn't like it it caught me differently this time but um i really liked sort of how paul sort of got into in chapter four the sort of like he spends multiple chapters being like you guys are doing great it's great news i'm so encouraged by you but let's finish the race and there's still this call to endure to keep your eyes focused to not get too complacent and um and it's interesting for a church that's doing so well for Paul to constantly remind them. It almost feels like what we mentioned with Zephaniah earlier of, of like, look, like I'm glad that those repentance and reforms are going great, but let's keep at it. And even though there's much to praise about this church here, he's still aware of how quickly possibly things can change and how people can fall away. And I think that's true. I mean, if you've spent any life in the church, you have somebody that like, um, you either discipled or you watched have this tremendous faith and then suddenly something switched and they just sort of fell away and disappeared and, and didn't finish that race that was put in front of them. And um, and I think Paul's very aware of that as he's encouraging this church. Hmm. Psalm 76. God alone is to be feared. We don't always understand his ways, why he does, what he does, and when he does it, but we are to fear him. Yeah. You got the celebration of Israel's victory over his enemies, the prophecy of God's future victory. Um, there's sort of this post-exilic kind of language mm-hmm. here too of praise. And so um, as we get to the exile, we're going to get to some of these exilic type Psalms as well. Psalm 84. This also reminds me of Paul longing for his heavenly home. Come back to Psalm 84, spend some time reading it and think of your citizenship and how much you love your true home, which is in heaven. Yeah. And and, and most associate this with sort of the exile of Babylon. Mm-hmm. And perhaps this is sort of the longing yeah. of the psalmist to be like, I just want to be back in your courts. Like we miss sort of your presence, God, that, mm-hmm. that we had back in at home. And um, certainly that's metaphoric to even the greater presence of God. And so, um, yeah. And in Psalm 86... I love the back and forth here. David is distressed and crying out for preservation and grace and joy and salvation, but he steps back and he remembers who God is. There is none like God. So David can find comfort knowing that God is great and does wondrous things. Yeah, and, and there's some New Testament connections of like who in the days of, of the flesh offered up mm-hmm. strong cries, this connection of, of Jesus and, and particularly the Garden of Gethsemane moments and God who hears his cries. But um uh, he gives God the glory, seeks God's grace, and that God will hear his prayers. And so for next week, uh, at least in the Old Testament, um, we will get sort of this final fall of the southern kingdom, and more particularly the fall of Jerusalem. Now, um, as we head into the exilic prophets, um, you, you have to think through the 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 all the lessons that now have to be learned by this new group of 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 Jewish people who um, who now have to ask like okay what does it look like to live in a place where we are around nothing but foreigners who worship other gods and what does it look like to to for to think about God's presence without the temple and things like that and so we're going to get different prophets answering those questions and some of the struggles and, and speaking to those moments. So we're going to get Jeremiah speak to those moments and we're going to get Ezekiel speak to those moments. Uh, these major lessons that Israel is going to now have to wrestle with these prophets are going to step into and speak to. And then the new Testament, um, the different letters deal with different problems in the context of their cities. And if, if you are doing a little bit of that context work as part of your reading plan, so you get to Colossians, you start reading about a little bit of the history of Colossians. Um, it's a good question. Why do you think Paul spent so much time presenting what is I think in all of his letters like the highest view of Jesus in this letter mm-hmm. and like he yeah. he heavily elevates Jesus like what might be going on in Colossians what what sort of the worldview that Colossians struggle with and so um, I think it helps uh, paint the picture of why Paul's writing the way he is 
Yeah. And then I would say in the Old Testament, you next week are going to finish Kings and Chronicles. We've been reading them for so long. So spend some time flipping back through the books, remembering all that has happened and what we read and see if you can find or point back to some major themes that stand out to you about God and the people of God. And in Colossians, I would pay attention to the role that baptism plays in Colossae and in Paul's emphasis on it in the book of Colossians. All right. That's it for us. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you.